Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This talk, Kabbalah on the Jewish Bookshelf, was recorded in Melbourne in 2022 at Blake Street Shul. A video of this talk can be found on David's YouTube channel or on the episode webpage. Go to davidsolomon.online for more. I want to dedicate this talk to a very special soul who in many ways for the last 10 years has been suspended now really between Shamaim Varetz, and that is uh, my good friend uh, Guma Agiyar, whose birthday would have been tomorrow and still is tomorrow, and who almost exactly 10 years ago disappeared in a very famous uh, case where uh, nobody was ever found and uh, no one has ever known since, but a unique individual who uh, was probably the person that I have met most in my life that could have claim on a messianic mission. He certainly thought so. And uh, there were many around him who were inspired greatly by his love of uh, the people of Israel and uh, his love of the land of Israel. And it is in the honor of, uh, not his memory, because we remember people like this, but I like Hanoch, I mean, uniquely disappeared. So enough on that. Uh, it's a very interesting talk I'm about to give, if I say so myself. Rabbi Sendor asked if I would do the Kabbalah section of the library course. And because we're based in a library, I thought that it was something that I really, really uh, said yes to enthusiastically, because it is essentially starting with the concept of book the physical object, the text, but he he asked if I would deliver the fourth one, which is on uh, Kabbalah, on Jewish mysticism, a subject that I do not really, I very reluctantly teach, uh, and that uh, yet I spend most of my time swimming around in. So you've got a library, yeah? You've got a Jewish library, the talk starts now. And you have spent three weeks building your library, correct? More or less. So in the first week you did? We went first through Mikra Kudalot, so the, the Nejim Aforshim and Parshanami crowd. Well, first we did a, a, a survey of the past 2,000 years of Rebbeic history. Yeah. Awesome. About five minutes. Uh, and then, and then uh, the Parshanami crowd, then Gemara and Mishnah and then the halakhic process and she'elot to chubot. No midrash? Uh, we touched on that in Gemara, in you know, kind of midrashic literature, yeah. So you've got a library and you've got a few books in it and they cover um, some uh, basic, I mean, uh, we're talking a library that's starting to reflect maybe your particular interests, maybe your derech, maybe your particular way, maybe the way that you approach Jewish sources, what works for you. I mean, within each genre there are different types and within each type there are different translations and versions. The, the world of Jewish books is astonishingly big and we happen to even live in the golden age of Jewish publishing. And that's been hammering at us for uh, the last 30 years or so. Yeah, There's more commentaries, more translations, more everything. And then, of course, around 2010 or so, up pops Safaria, and that's also developing. In other words, Jewish texts and their publications have started moving online and so on. There's a plethora of things out there. But your library, such as it is your physical library, your physical library is going to reflect probably where your interests lie, either that or what you want to impress your friends with. That's in your library, you know, because you walk into someone's library and you see a Talmud on the shelf, you assume that they've read it. Otherwise, why would it be there? <laughs> so, 
you've got your library, and within that there are different editions, whatever. And why do we have a physical library? Why do we have a physical library? I mean, even I mean now, yeah. Basically, thirty thousand Jewish texts could fit on one disc. I mean, why have we got why have we got physical and and, and what's not on the disc? What's a disc, right? Ooh, online. I mean, what's not accessible? Shabbos. Well, there you go. So on the one hand, I'm going to point to two reasons why we have a physical library. I'm only going to spend 30 seconds on that because there's so much to talk about. But I did want to take this opportunity. Why do we have a physical library and not just go online or use whatever? So one answer that's been given already is that <laughs> books will always be produced by the Jewish world, physical books that we can read, because we can't go online and we can't use computers on Shabbat. Not at the moment anyway. Yeah? I think it's possibly a good reason to keep it that way. It's so that we preserve books the way books preserve us. So we have to produce physical books because how can you have a book that can't be read on Shabbat? Yeah? Secondly, actually I'm going to give you three reasons. Because <laughs> the third is just too wild. The second reason is and I know that what I'm going to sound is going to say it's going to what I'm going to say is going to sound like an educator's cliche, yeah. But it is inestimable the effect that physical books have on your family and your children in the household, even if they don't open them that often. You might have three or four children; one of them will discover your books. And then the journey has begun. And when you want to make reference to books, you need them there. Yeah? So, in every Jewish household, I would say, there's a basic library. Every Jewish household that has a value of Jewish education to some sort. You're going to see a Siddur, you're going to see a Chumash, and you're going to see a Tanakh. Yeah? And you're going to probably, in if they know what they're doing, uh, there is a Jewish calendar. I'm classing that as a book, but it's a publication. And then those a little bit beyond, they're going to have what? They're going to have maybe um, some, uh, a few translations of maybe some commentaries. Yep. Maybe a, a book by Rabbi Sachs. Yes. Maybe a book by a rabbi they've heard of on the parasha. Yeah, maybe a book that was given to them as a bar mitzvah present, which is a commentary by a rabbi they've never heard of on the parasha. <laughs> and then they're going to have maybe, uh, because they went through a phase where they're actually learning regularly, they might have a couple of books, like, you know, translation of a tractate of Mishnah that they were learning, or maybe two or three volumes of Steinsaltz that represents New Year resolutions that they're going to do Duffy on me, and they go down to Golds and they buy the tractate, they're sitting there on the shelf, and then you go, am I describing the kind of thing that people might see on people's shelves as you delve deeper into the Jewish world? Yeah. And then you get people that actually, whether they are learning or not, they are inside a culture that values learning. So you will go into people's houses and there will be a very impressive entire wall of books including a Shas and a Shulchan Aruch and a Rambam and a big set of Mishnah and something gorgeous and maybe, you know, boom, bang, and they look amazing. Whoa! Yeah? Whether they are learning those books or not, there is a culture that values that. That is definitively Jewish culture. Make wall-to-wall, -wall basic decor of your books. Uh... And so it begins. So whether the parents are reading it, a child is aware of it, there's books to pick up. Yeah. No. Although, I will say that there is a massive difference between whether the parents are reading them and whether they're not. There is a big difference. And then there's a third reason, and it touches upon what I'm going to talk about, and I won't lose track of time. And that is that the Jewish people, as they move through history, define their books and they define them physically. What do I mean by define? What do I mean by define? I can tell you right now. There would be no problem for a person to insert a text 
into the Jewish canon and claim it had been there for a long, long time than now. The transition of media from the printed text to the digital age, any transition of media is the time where you can insert things into a textual continuum like the Jewish people. Does everybody understand the point I'm making? I'm not going to tell you exactly how to do it, but I do know how to do it. <laughs> so the production of physical books anchors our understanding. It's a bit like voting, right? I mean, if the Chumash only existed online, we might find ourselves in a strange universe. So physical books are important, and physical books sit in a household, and what physical books would we have if we were interested in the subject of Jewish mysticism, of Kabbalah? What would be a book that we would have, or books, and how far can you go? That's primarily the subject of what I'm going to talk about as a framework. But in the course of that framework, I'm going to show you a journey that I want to share with you that relates to my work. What's a book in Kabbalah? And for the sake of this discussion, we're going to call Kabbalah Jewish mysticism. It's an adequate definition for our purposes, because when you're interested in Kabbalah, you don't know what it is, and that's why you're interested. <coughs> So our starting point is always going to be, okay, I think it's something to do with mystical. And people, whenever they say the word Kabbalah, <coughs> they get this look in their eyes. And uh, what's that all about? And no one seems to understand it, but maybe I'm special enough to. And maybe it'll speak to me or I'll speak to it. Or maybe I... <laughs> who knows? I should examine everything, and you should. Yep. And especially since this is sitting on the doorstep of our own tradition. Not on the doorstep, it's well in the threshold. It's right there for me. Yeah? And I've got rabbis running around going, Oh, yes, yeah, very special to learn Kabbalah. So why not? Let's see what's so special. What's so, spe what so special that I can't know what it is? All sorts of different reasons why people get into Kabbalah. And a lot of people just, it speaks to their soul. The idea. Yeah? There's something there. And there is. And there is. So what are we going to have? So <laughs> we live in a world where there are many different ways in which people are introduced to Jewish mysticism. In the English-speaking world. those have to some extent some parallels in the Hebrew speaking world and what I'm going to say about the English speaking world is on a micro in other western languages so you'll have similar phenomena in French or in Spanish or in Russian but nowhere is the world of Jewish texts and explanations and translations more developed outside of Hebrew more developed than in the English language and we're very fortunate that we can access English. And that's our language in places like this. <coughs> so, in the English-speaking world, there you'll find that there are representations of all the different major schools and streams within Kabbalistic teaching. It won't shock you to hear that there's more than one definition of what constitutes appropriate Kabbalistic teaching or even what is appropriate Kabbalistic understanding. So a lot of people, for a lot of people, their first real exposure to Kabbalistic concepts, not Kabbalah per se, because it's not coming as raw Kabbalah, but Kabbalistic concepts, would be through Hasidic philosophy. For example, Chabad. Yep. If that is your mode of exposure and you're coming from that way, then huh, 
there's a text that I think that you would want to read. If and 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 by the way, by the way, uh, that's not a bad way to come into it. Chabad does have a very deep take on foundational Kabbalistic concepts, but for me, what I'm interested in here is actual what is the essence of Kabbalistic literature, and it's not quite there yet, even though it will introduce you to the foundational concepts. If there's any... <laughs> if, <laughs> I, I don't want to use... It's impossible even to use the word limitation with Chabad thought or drawback, but if there is any limitation, it's that they're kind of... Uh, they're, they're kind of giving you the completely processed glicks colors and what you actually want to know is what bread is made of. Oh. Oh. That's a mashal from the Zohar, by the way, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> That's why he's living in the mountain. So, That's one way. And if you were in that derech, if you want to go through that derech, there's an amazing book which is um, uh, Mystical Concepts in Hasidism, which was first published as an appendix to the Tanya, the translation of the Tanya, and is also published in its own book by, I think, by Emmanuel Schocher. It's just astonishingly brilliant essay, or like a book-length essay <clears throat> on the concepts. Yeah? And I've seen a few others since. That was the one that I was first introduced to when I was... Uh, I had a couple of ways in that I went, but that was one of them. Then you might uh, you might come across some of the Ashlagian school materials. So, in other words, the Kabbalah Center, Leitman, these types of publications, Michal Leitman, these types of publications, uh, which you need to understand represent a very particular school of thought, and so on. So, you might have publications along those lines. Uh, but what would be a book if you wanted to actually impress yourself that you were a serious mystic and that you were studying this Kabbalah properly, you would want to have not a book about Kabbalah or about Kabbalistic concepts or trying to digest it for you. You would say, give me the source book. Let me see what others are reading. Yeah? Why are these rabbis with long beards any cleverer than me? Is a very, very, very healthy and brilliant critical turning point for everybody to arrive at. Yeah? I'm not, I'm not meaning to denigrate any authority, but the fact that we want to be able to say to people who are telling us what it is, well, okay, let me see that. And therefore, you're going to get some raw text. You're going to actually go to the source text. And the source text that you'll want is so, well, you'll go, I think I'm ready for a source text. Well, David, what source text am I going to start with? So within this, now we start getting closer to what I want to talk about. Yeah? So what source text am I going to start with? So you're going to go, well... A lot of people... Well, you see, it depends who your friends are. I mean, it really does. Yeah? So you'll, you know, you'll meet someone down the park and they'll whisper to you, psst, Kabbalah. <laughs> and you go, yeah. And they go, oh man, you want to read Sefer Yitzira? Sefer Yitzira. Who put up your hand if you've heard of Sefer Yitzira? There you go, you see? That's a reasonable proportion of a people that are talk like this. You've heard of Sefer Yitzira. Sefer Yitzira is serious ooga booga. And you're going to look in there, and, it's going to and you're going to hear from some rabbi that it tells you how to make a golem. <laughs> you're going to uh, look at the first Mishnah, and you're going to go, whoa, this is the book. It's telling me how it is. Yeah? There are 10 spherot, there are 32 paths of wisdom, there are this, okay, I'm flowing. And then within just the next couple of paragraphs, you're completely... <laughs> 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 But Sefi Yitzira, if you're going to tackle Sefi Yitzira, and nothing is acquired easily, Kabbalah is not instant tea. It's a journey. It's a journey. 
And when you start your journey, Sefiatira is not a bad place to start, but it's not ideal if you want to get a total picture. But it's probably an important book to have in your library, because no one's going to take you seriously if you don't. One way is to read sequentially. What's the first Kabbalistic text that pops up in Jewish history that we now kind of call a Kabbalistic text? I know, with apologies to all the scholars that say Sefer Yitzira is not a technically a Kabbalistic text, and maybe at a certain level it's not, but it's regarded as a tablet Kabbalistic text in reception history. And when's that popping up? Sorry? 10th century. That's a really, really educated estimate. That's excellent. Somewhere, they don't know, obviously, somewhere, somewhere between, the, I mean, the earliest would be maybe the 4th or 5th, that would be extremely early, and the latest would be the, the ninth or 10th, yeah, yeah, so around about there, somewhere, probably in its form that we have it now, because it's clearly a book that has evolved. And that's the other thing about the printed text. I mean, we talk about our transition to the digital now, but the transition to the printed word was a massive transition as well. And that, uh, when, we, when, we, when we jumped that media, it gave texts a whole anchoring in time. Uh, so you've got Sefi Yitzira, and if you're going to have Sefi Yitzira, then you're going to have... What book are you going to have? There's, there's, it's the best book on Sefi Yitzira. No, 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 Sefi Yitzira. Which edition of Sefi Yitzira? You say, you wake up one morning, you go, oh, I want Sefi Yitzira, right? You're not just going to run to the nearest fish and chip shop and go, can I have a Sefi Yitzira? Or you're going to sit online, you're going to go, Sefi Yitzira. Amazon, right? Same thing. Online bookshop, physical bookshop. What are you going to buy? Sorry? You're going to buy Kaplan. You're going to buy Rav Arya Kaplan's at Sal's translation and commentary on Sefi Yitzira. Because that's amazing. It does contain <coughs> his particular interpretation of Sefer be aware, but it is such a phenomenal composite of all of the commentaries on Sefer I don't think you would need another book on Sefer for a long time. Seriously. There are three or four major medieval commentators on Sefer He's digested them all. He's presented their opinions in English. I, it's difficult to speak highly enough of the work that he did on Sefer Yitzir. And then you're going to go, oh, well, that was good. Now, what else has Ravaria Kaplan got? Oh, the Bahir. Yeah? And you'll run to the Bahir. It may or may not end up on your shelf. You'll run to the Bahir. I'm going sequentially now the books you will buy. And you'll get the Bahir and you'll go, I... What you're seeing in that translation, and you can go to Gold's tomorrow and buy it, what you're seeing in that translation, which, by the way, could only, unfortunately, have been a draft translation of Ravaria Kaplan. It's not at the level of Sefiyat Sir. I think he was working on Bahir. But Bahir is a notoriously fluid text. Now, I know you can say, David, what do you mean by fluid text? You've got words on the page. What do you mean they're swimming around? It's fluid. It's fluid. And uh, no Mishnah is the same the next time you read it. It like, contains 200 small paragraphs. And what, you look, what your mind is looking for is a system of some sort by which you can understand what they're saying. But the conceptual shift is so great because the Sefer Bahir, which emerges around uh, some point, it emerges... Obviously, when I say emerges, let me touch on that for a minute. What do I mean when I say emerges? The first draft. Codification, rough... Well, it's attributed. It's attributed to Rabbi Nechunya ben Akana, so who's living in the Tanaitic period. So the... F I mean, you're 100% right. I'm, I'm, I wasn't overriding your answer because it was... Thinking, ah, that's correct. In a sense. Because it has an attribution that's much older. Is everything okay? Okay. People get touchy. These books have very holy attributions. Rabbi Nachoni ben Yekana is the legendary author of Sefer Bahir, even though Sefer Bahir is like, what is it? 
not really a sefer, it's like the Bahir. It's a phenomenon. And then it emerges. When I say it emerges, it means that I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not as brave as you to say it was written then. But we don't really know of it before, and it emerges then. It represents a whole conceptual shift, Sefer Abahir, in what our understanding of the underlying framework and symbolic framework of the Kabbalah is going to be. But even then, we don't quite see it. It's telling us that we can make imagistic, symbolic parallels with God, and that God has characteristics that somehow mirror the human. But says we can understand God in a range of mashalim, in a range of metaphoric arrangements. I could go through the series of important texts that link the Bahir to the next one I'm going to talk about for a bit, which will be on your library. So you've got, you've got your Kaplan's Sefi Yetzirah, yeah? That's the light blue. Then you've got his Bahir, which is the dark blue. And you've got English and you've got Hebrew in those texts, so you sort it. And then someone's going to tell you, not the same person in the park, but someone, you know, more respectable, is going to, well, not more respectable, in a more respectable location, is going to tell you, and you're going to see it yourself, because you're going to be poking around, and you're going to go, okay, at some point I have to go, and I have to see what's going on with the Zohar. The Zohar seems to be the ocean from which everything seems to flow. And all the rivers themselves, they flow back into this ocean called the Zohar. What is the Zohar? And there's only one way to find out what is the Zohar. Do you think that that one way is by Googling it and reading the Wikipedia article on the Zohar? What is the one way in which you find out what is the Zohar? Reading the Zohar? You read the Zohar. Give the man a lot. <laughs> you read the Zohar, so you go, oh. David Solomon and the Zohar both tell me I have to read the Zohar. So, what are you going to have on your shelf? Correct. Today, you might get presented with all sorts of different options, but at the end of the day, whether you're buying for yourself or you're buying for your shul or you're buying for your library or you're buying for your school, you're going to have the impressive 12-volume set in bright, lurid yellow of... You're looking at me like, you know, look at this. You don't have it. I brought a book to show you. But <laughs> <laughs> well, we are looking for an extra yeah, donation. If anybody wishes to, this is a wonderful this occasion. Is, this, is, this is what you'll have. You know, this. I just, I just happened to bring volume one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been right? I mean, but people are going to be watching, so be careful. I'm actually a massive fan of yellows, so for me to have this sitting on the shelf is quite, you know, there's 12 volumes or whatever. It's immense project. You're going to have this. I'm going to talk about this in a moment, so I'll just put it there. Um, I'll just put it back in. <laughs> if it stays in shot, people will get the wrong idea. I'm very honoured to be um, friends uh, with some of the co colleagues, let's call them, who work in the area of Jewish mysticism and scholarship. And some of them are friends of mine. <laughs> And I have amazing discussions. And one of my close friends, of course, is, uh, um, it's not a secret, is um, uh, Professor Daniel Abrams of Bar-Ilan University. He's the tenured professor of Jewish mysticism at Bar-Ilan. Everybody knows Bar-Ilan. Uh, and he is a prodigious scholar. I mean, he's, he's a serious dude. Uh, American uh, by birth, but he's lived in Israel for, for decades. And he is... Uh, he runs the main um, journal in the field. He's a, and he's. I'm, I'm very fortunate that he's a friend. Wouldn't want to be him. The. It's very interesting because Daniel has, for many many years now, argued that the Zohar is not a book. He even went so far, a few years ago, to state that. He only wants one thing written on his tombstone, 
and that is that the Zohar is not a book. <laughs> and he has spent much of his career very, very cogently arguing that the Zohar is not a book. And for the last 10 years or so, I, I have been disagreeing with him. And I mean, well, I'm talking even sentences in the Zohar that say this, the Zohar, the book. Uh, but beyond that, I'm more focused on reception history as a translator, as someone who's interested in how ideas are transmitted into other languages, and especially to my own mind, I, um, I, I'm very focused on reception history. And there's no question, for the last 500 years, we have this thing called, thing, I mean, we have this phenomenon called Sefer HaZohar, the book of the Zohar. But be aware that the Zohar was indeed not always a book. The problem that I think Professor Abrams, I mean, I'm not going <laughs> the problem Professor Abrams had, I mean, it's a giant, but the problem, the problem there is that it's an anachronistic fallacy. The, the, the texts and what they represent to the Jewish people are an ongoing concern last 500 years, we've had this thing called the Book of the Zohar. But it is true if you look at the period from the Zohar's emergence. When did the Zohar emerge? Emerge. We're not going to talk about first drafts of the Zohar. <laughs> emerge. 12th century? Sorry? 12th century. Okay, so close. So, so uh, basically, we don't know of the Zohar before the end of the 13th century. And the famous basically around the famous year 1290. And, but that's when we kind of understand by historical reasoning and by textual analysis when the Zohar emerged. It doesn't mean that's when we have found our earliest manuscripts. That's not till later. I mean, you've got to realize that there's a lot of a lot of scholarship has gone into understanding even these facts about the Zohar. And it is more than remarkable that within less than two centuries, the Zohar was an absolute definitive part of the Jewish canon, informing every aspect of it. Not just Jewish mysticism, but tefillah, prayer, Jewish practices, Jewish rituals, and even, in some cases, halakha itself. <clears throat> How did that happen? And it wasn't a book. <laughs> it was a body of literature. Now, the Zohar... I'm going to run out of time, so I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I'm not going to go... I don't think I'm going to go beyond that. If you've got the Zohar then where you're going to go from there, after the Zohar, I'll just go there very quickly and then come back because I want to talk more about the Zohar. Uh, where are you going to go after you've read Daniel Max the Zohar? You're not, possibly not going to read it all before you do this. I mean, I've, I've, I've as, uh, as Rabbi Sendor can well attest, I, uh, I don't think I've read all the Zohar. And... Uh, there are, it's, it's, it's an ocean, and you keep coming back to it all the time. After you're, but you want to be familiar with it. You want to be familiar with its style. You want to be familiar with its imagery. You, and particularly, you want to be familiar with its symbolic system. By the time you've read a few pages of the Zohar, and I cannot recommend strongly enough to those who have the skill or those who wish to acquire the skill to read it in the Aramaic at the same time because the language is just sublime. Unfortunately, uh, the Prince Zohar, Daniel Matz Zohar, does not have, it's not bilingual, so you will need to find a way of accessing that. And there are other problems with the Pritzker as well that I'll touch upon in a moment. Not problems with problems, but more to do with the way that they constructed that particular Zohar, which pertains to what I'm going to show you. You're going to go to the Ari. 
you're going to go to Lurianic Kabbalah. Because that's the next big phase. And that is the phase that really overwhelms everything that happens after what they call, and use this term because this is a very good term to use, it sounds extremely impressive and it's fine. And scholars will know what you mean and your other dinner guests won't know what you mean. And, uh, but it will encourage them to find out, right? The Safadian Revolution. In the 16th century, in Sfat, everything got transformed. People had been reading the Zohar for a couple of centuries, and it was very beautiful, but no one really understood what was going on there. And that's when Isaac Luria came along in the 16th But Isaac Luria did not exist in a vacuum. The Ari did not exist in a vacuum. Sfat had been building up. Kabbalistic energy. Many, many people had gone to Tzfat to. We've talked. About, I've talked about this in other talk. People talk about this all the time. But there's no question that the Ari is the overwhelming project to come out of Tzfat and basically dominates Kabbalistic discourse till today. All of the major schools. There really aren't any new schools of Kabbalah that are set up after the RE that don't engage with the RE. The only way you're going to bypass the RE, if you want to bypass the RE, and I can tell you that it's a very big road to bypass and you don't want to, but if you did say, I don't want to, I want to know what Kabbalah was before the RE, then you're going to go to the books I've already mentioned. Yeah, and you're going to fill in the gaps there. You're going to learn Shahare Ora, and you're going to learn the Ramak, and you're going to learn the. But you're basically going to be based. Or you might, you might, if you meet that guy down the park again, he might tell you to go and read some Abu Lafya. And then you'll get into the whole yogic meditation, thinking about the name, you know, uttering names. You'll be walking around in a bedsheet and a stick before you know. I want to come back to the Zohar because I want to talk about what is, what I do, and I know that everybody thinks that what they do is the most interesting thing, and I understand that I might have that bias, but I'm hoping that what I do show you in the next window, the next 15 minutes or so, will actually be of interest to you, because it's kind of fascinating. So... Here I am, and it's 2009. Yeah, everybody remember 2009? 2009, we were living in the old city of and we. I woke up one day and I was preparing a talk. I was giving talks then, and I was preparing a talk, and I um, wanted to look up. Uh, a text, uh, a passage in a text called Tikkunei HaZohar. Now, Tikkunei HaZohar is a very, very unique literary um, phenomenon. It's in the same language as the Zohar, but it's stylistically different. And its emphasis is different and it's Theological outlook is a bit more nuanced in some ways. And it really, what most people would say of Tikkun Azar, if they, if they were asked, it's like, oh, it's, it's part of the Zohar. So even at that stage, even my apprehension of it was, okay, so I've, I've seen bits of it, but it's part of the Zohar. I haven't really given a lot of thought to that. But I knew that it was quite influential and that it had been popping up here and there. I knew that the Aramaic was somehow different, but I hadn't made a study of that. And it was popping up here and there in different sources, wherever you go to look at in Kabbalistic texts. But you kind of, your mind goes, oh, Zohar. Yeah? But I needed to find this passage because I came across this passage and it referenced a passage in the Tikkunim. I looked it up and I couldn't really understand Pshat. Does everybody know what Pshat is? I'm talking about just the plain literal meaning of what I'm reading. 
What does it mean on the surface? And I know that the surface can be different as well because that vibrates with different meaning possibilities. But let's decipher what the actual words mean. Let's put them together and let's get a common sense understanding of just what it's communicating at the surface level. That's pshat. And I didn't understand pshat. So I thought, that's okay. I'll go to the translation. <laughs> right? I mean, they've translated the Zohar, haven't they? Right? And in the past, if I've needed to look at a translation, I would go somewhere like... Uh, well, in 2009, we were only up to volume 3 or 4 of uh, the Pritzker. Uh, project that I really wasn't connected, had knew nothing about. I mean, I, I, I knew that the volumes were coming out because I was buying them every two years. They started in around 2003 or something like that. But I knew that he hadn't done the tick on him yet. Sonsino put out a translation of the Zohar. Some of you might have seen, some of you might have a Sonsino translation of the Zohar. It was done by Simon and Sperling in the 1930s. It is the workmanlike English translation of the bulk of the Zohar, but not everything is there. I greedily went to the Sonsino to see if this passage was translated to find that it, none of this entire stratum of, of, uh, of Tikkun Ezzar was, uh, of the, called the Tikkun Ezzar, was translated at all. I then went researching around a little bit and very, very quickly discovered that the Tikkun Ezzar as an entire stratum of the Zoharic corpus had never been translated. In, it had been translated into Hebrew, but had never been translated into any Western languages except certain passages. One of the most famous, the most famous passage from Tikkun Zohar has been translated many times because it has found its way into the Siddur. Anyone know what that is? Correct, Amundus. Patach Eliyahu appears uh, in, uh, not in the Sachashkenaz, but in uh, more, you know, Edot Mizrach and, uh, and, and Sufari Nuschaot, and of course Hasidic and Kabbalistic Nuschaot of, 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 of the Sidur. You'll see Patach Eliyahu in some Sidur, most Sidurim where it appears, you'll see it uh, before Kabbalat Shabbat, uh, and in some Sidurim you'll see it right at the beginning of the Sidur because they say it should be said every day depending on the you know, very famous, amazing, Sufic-sounding text which talks about the Sefirot and Kabbalistic symbolism in the most kind of transcendental terms. What is the Zohar? I know that I didn't say what the Zohar is. I talked about this phenomenon of literature. I didn't actually say what it is. And I'm not saying what it is because we're talking about the books. The themes are beyond the scope of what we can talk about right now. But I have to touch upon the themes to talk about what we now know about the Tikkunim because the Tikkunim are <laughs> just pervasively influential as a bridge from the Zohar. Scholars say the Tikkunim were a late stratum of the Zohar. In other words, they came 20 or 30 years later. So we'd be talking sometime maybe between, say, 1305 to 1325. Somewhere in that range is when... It either was composed, appeared, or whatever. The Tsar famously, on a legendary attributional level, is attributed to, of course, Shimon. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who, and the Tsar represents the revelations made by him, or with him, and with the companions, and so on, in the cave, not in the cave, it's different discussions, but the Tikkun Zohar is like someone, and the Zohar, you have to understand, is a poem, effectively, of thousands of pages long in Aramaic, a sublime uh, description of the relationship between God and the Jewish people, and how that is embodied in the system of the Sfirot, but also bringing it down to individuals and how and Tikkun Zohar is like someone read the whole Zohar and then took ten magic mushrooms and just went <laughs> and I often say, I often use this, those of you who are familiar with English literature, if I say, and it's quite true, is that if the Zohar is Ulysses, then Tikkun Zohar is Finnegan's Wake because it 
is a huge experiment in symbolic how far can you take uh, a symbolistic understanding of the cosmos and bring it down that an individual can actually not just study it but be it huge bridge between the Zohar and the Ari and all of the Ari's a lot, not all, a lot of the Ari's and subsequent Kabbalah is infused with ideas from the Tikkunim. I'll give you an example. But if I said, how many people, how many people in this room have gedabbled a tiny bit in the Tikkunim? And not in the Tikkunim, in Kabbalah in general, in Kabbalistic literature. Uh, what about Hasidic literature? Yeah? Yeah? No, no, a little bit? Yeah? 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 Who's heard of the idea that there are four worlds, four domains of existence? Yeah? Action, formation, creation, emanation. Yeah? Where's that idea from? Where's that idea from? So people would say, oh, it's from the Zohar. But you look in the Zohar, you won't see it. It's from the Tikkunim. There are many other examples of foundational concepts that build upon the Zohar. You'll see the kernel of Vladir in the Zohar and the Tikkunim will extract it. And then it will move on to be developed upon further, particularly in Tzfat and so on, as these ideas become building. Is that, am I saying anything that's freaking anyone out? You understand that Kabbalah is not a wisdom that we're learning all from the past. We are developing it as we are thinking. It's a way of understanding the universe and our relationship within it. It's an organic continuum with the Jewish people, with the universe, with, 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 and with humanity as well. I'm going to show you this. This is the this is from the earliest manuscript that we have. of the Tikkunim. Right. Now, what you're looking at here, what you're looking at here, I've got a few things to show you. So, you're going to forgive me, I'm going to go for five, a few more minutes, but I've got, I've, I've, I've put the, the, the Gizmatrons, so I'm going to show you. This is my work. This is a, this manuscript, and this is an astonishing manuscript. This is just one folio, which is one half of it. It's just one page of it. Yeah? It's 300 folios. That's A and B, a folio. It's, and it's from a famous manuscript. Uh, in fact, it's from a manuscript that is probably... It, it's so valuable, historically and textually, that it's hard to estimate it. It's one of the most important manuscripts in the Jewish world. And it, is how, and it is the earliest recension, not only of the Tikkun Ezoar, but it's actually the first kind of earliest foolish recension of the Zohar itself. And it's dated to somewhere between 1405 and 1420, probably around 1414. If that's the earliest, I wouldn't even call it an edition, that's the earliest manuscript we have, how do we know it existed before that? Like, that's your earliest physical evidence, right there. Letters. That's a passage from the Tikkunim. Sorry? Letters. You had letters between rabbis or something. That's close, but, 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 but what the, the, the answer we're, we're looking for is the fact that yeah, it's cited, it's, cited yeah. it's quoted. And also, it's part of to do with the dating of how we know it. You can see the development of certain ideas as they emerge. So we know it couldn't have been written before X. It couldn't have been written after Y. So we know approximately when it was. And it's already from the middle of the 1300s. It started just fragments of it. started appearing as quotes in other texts. But this is the earliest copy we have of the Tikkunim itself. And the other reason why this is phenomenally important this manuscript and it's housed in Toronto. I went to Toronto, the University of Toronto, to the Rare Books Collection to physically cite this because I needed to see for myself. 
that it existed. All I was ever looking at was PDFs. Yes. But I hadn't seen the book, so I had an opportunity to go to Toronto and I went and I physically saw it. The, one of the, the other reason why it's so incredibly amazing is because of its history of ownership. This has been studied quite a bit, this manuscript, and we now know that it was owned by a very, very illustrious, to some extent, uh, line of people over the last uh, 600 years, one of whom was Shabtai Tzvi, <laughs> actually owned this manuscript, which may explain the amazing piece of Kabbalistic graffiti that exists on the next page. And if you look at that, I don't know if you can see what that is. Can you see what that is in the margin? Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but even better, even better, look where it's in. Shabtai. <laughs> Every time the word Shabtai appears in the manuscript, and it's more than just here, there is a phallus drawn in the margin. <laughs> Someone was clearly excited about that. So, so that's... So, all right. So, was this before or after you saw the manuscript? <laughs> <laughs> they should never have left me alone with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's one of the most remarkable things about, about uh, uh, that particular manuscript. But the question I then had, in 2010... I mean, I knew none of this then, but in 2010, I decided that I would translate the Tikkun. I thought, no one's done it. Yeah? So Daniel Method and Translation. So, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know. But I thought, well, let's... Yeah. But you know what I did know? I didn't know whether he was going to, but I knew he hadn't yet. <laughs> so I thought, ha, I bet he's saving it till last, because it's difficult. I'm going to head him off at the pass. <laughs> right? I'm going to get there before he does. He's just going to go, ah, look, it's already there. Or whatever. I just wanted the translation now. So I started working with it for, for a few months. I started trying to get accustomed to its style, what it's doing. I can tell you now that, uh, and I'm making this point now because it really belongs in a few minutes' time, when I tell you, but you would not have been able... Why had it not been translated? There's a whole lot of discussion on why it hadn't been translated. I've actually contributed to that discussion. There is one of the reasons uh, why I believe it would, it, 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 not the reason why it hasn't been, but the opportunity afforded now to translate would be extremely difficult without our contemporary digital databases. The way you'll see in a moment, the way the, 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 way the text is constructed, you would not know or ever really be sure what you're reading. Is it something that Tikkunim is telling you? Or is it a symbolic referent? Or is it a fragment from a verse? Or is it a fragment from a statement made in the Talmud or the Midrash? And if you don't know what you're looking at and the way those things are put together, but unless, you know, and, and not everyone is the Gaon of Vilna who has it all at his fingertips. So with, with, with modern tools have enabled us to work towards the translation. But that, I didn't know any of that yet. My question was, what am I going to translate? So I started by writing, I started by working on the translation. It took me a year to write, to write a translation of the Hakdama, which is like 17 tapim of, the, of, of 17 folios of Tikkun Ezra. Uh, and then uh, subsequently, at around, in around 2012, I've been working on it for a couple of years, and in around 2012, I had a very interesting encounter um, with Daniel Abrams and others where I tried to work out uh, so I'm gonna, we're going to translate this, and uh, that was a whole evolution in story. And then you know, uh, the life got involved in, 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 in commissioning the first draft. Took two three years, but early on, I had to make the decision: what was, what edition, what version of Tikkun Ezra was I going to translate? On the one hand, and this is really important, Danny Matt decided that he would construct his own Zohar. So it's called the Zohar, but really, if you sit down with the Zohar, many, many times you can't find out where you are in that translation because he's not following what has been known as the Zohar since the 16th century. The first printed edition was 1558 Mantua. It doesn't follow Mantua. It follows the Matt team's the, the Pritzker team's construction of what they think it probably looked like back in the 13th, 14th centuries. 
Now, that is an entire massive debate and discussion in Kabbalistic scholarship about what they did there. But the methodologies they relied on, we've moved on from there. The Zohar is a book, in my view. And we need to approach it as such. So, as beautiful as this is, I wasn't going to translate this. I was going to translate this. Now this is Daf Yudchet Amud Aleph of Kushta. Kushta is Constantinople. The first edition is a famous edition called Mantua, produced in Mantua. This is now, that's 1558. This is now the fifth or sixth edition of the Tikkunim. There was one, there wasn't really one during the 17th century, uh, but we start seeing some uh, at the beginning of the 18th. And um, in 1719, they, in, in Constantinople, they did a big edition where they combined manuscripts and they did all that and they made a proper edition. And then 20 years later, they did it again uh, in around 1740. And this particular edition became stabilized as a mother edition <coughs> for all subsequent editions of Tikkun Zohar. So, for example, if you download the text of Tikkun Zohar on an app now, its pagination will be according to the 1740 Constantinople edition. Everybody follow? Mm -hmm. So I figured that was the text. And also, it's a very special text. It's a very special text for a whole range of reasons. They brought it out as a big project, and importantly, it bisected directly between Toronto and today. So it was kind of like it spoke for itself, very important edition. And so I launched into Kushta. It's fascinating subject for a whole other stu uh, study of why Kushta is important. One of the features of Kushta is the, and I'm seeing if there's any on this page that I can show you. It's a, is the, is some words randomly have stars um, called star paths, and that's a whole other thing that. Um, <laughs> that uh, we decided uh, to retain because I decided to do a bilingual edition. So one of the things that we've done, which is kind of unique, is we have uh, commissioned and all over the last few years uh, that the entire text of an 18th century printed edition is digitalized. So we have literally typed it out and proofed it and so on. So it's the exact text digitally represented. But it's not so simple. It's not so simple. I'm going to reveal to you something that people have not seen. I'm going to show you some pages from my translation. It's um, been a long journey, now 2022. And please God, uh, if uh, there's no more pandemics and uh, monkeypox events, then uh, we will uh, be able to bring it out. So it is 148 dapim and 148 folios, that's nearly 300 pages, in a sense, of dense Aramaic uh, text. And the challenges and how to represent that have been not simple along the way, but uh, our translation currently, and I don't know how big I can make this because I want to show you certain things about it because I'm very proud of it and I know it's already quarter past and I've yeah. spoken for a while, but this is how the translation is currently looking. Now, I want to I wanna, I wanna highlight certain things and just because I just want to show you this. So first of all, we've made it uh, bilingual and in a kind of very, very simplified way, we've presented the, the Hebrew text. We have an, oh, here's an example of a star. We've retained the star. See on the word uh, shove? Do you see that star there? So those stars were placed in the text of Kushta by the editor of Kushta, Rabbi Chaim Al-Fandari, who came with manuscripts that he claimed were in possession of the Ari. Now the Ari, and were actually were in possession of Rabbi Chaim Vital, uh, the Ari's great student. These were his own manuscripts of Tikkun of, uh, Ezar, with which he used as a base to create the Constantinople edition. In Rav Chaim Vital's edition of Tikkun Ezar, there were stars placed next to certain words, which Rav Chaim Vital said the Ari himself had told him to place those stars there. And we don't know why they're there, all of them. They're called the star paths. 
And so he put the star paths in. So Khushka retained the star paths, we retained the star paths. Um, but but the, the neat thing I want to show you is what we did in the translation. Because there is so much wordplay, and there is so much, you know, symbolic parataxis and, and, and words. So we developed a four-symbol system of transliteration, diacritics, gematria, and spherotic equivalent. And you can see on the side there that the interplay of all of these different uh, symbologies. Everything, our edition, obviously also fully referenced, not, I mean, every single pasuk I looked up. Every, if it said Bereshit Barai Elohim, Genesis 1-1, I looked up Genesis 1-1 to make sure it's there. It was, every time. <laughs> And then, uh, and also, we are big on Ma'amare Chazal. So down the bottom, you're going to see uh, all the, uh, all, uh, where, wherever Chazal is quoted, you'll see there, yeah? Now, the Tikkunim contains 70 Tikkunim. Uh, it's not quite 70, it's a bit hazy on that. Uh, and uh, this is, the, what I'm showing you is from volume two, but it is ultimately seven volumes. As you can see, I have end notes, there are end notes all the way through that do not appear on the page. Whereas I felt that the Pritzke Zohar overwhelmed with the commentary, I wanted to present the Tikkunim as poetry, because it is paradactic poetry. And it is basically a complete mind fuse when you read through it. Uh, all of the symbols of the Zohar and so on are, uh, are, are, are present all the time, but it is... It is a, uh, a stunning text and stunning poetic text. So your footnotes, where would you have to find at the back, or is it up to each chapter? Place? You mean my end notes? Yeah. The annotation? Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> what you're asking was the subject of no small amount of thought. But at the end of the day, I've made the unpopular decision, but for reasons that I, I feel are right for me and for the publication, that all of the end notes for all of the volumes will be in volume seven. In other words... You've got to buy the whole set. <laughs> or, or, or just volume seven. We're very proud of it because the... Uh, did it look nice? Anyone? Yeah. Sorry? Yeah. Yeah. It's typeset by Rafael Freeman in Modi'im. And Rafael... Does anyone know the name Rafael Freeman? He's the guy who typeset the Corin uh, Steinsatz Talmud. He typeset the Corin Sidur. He's like... He, he, and, and, and we said to him, just, just make it nice, make it elegant, whatever. And we worked quite a bit on the design and how it's going to lay out. So... Yeah, so it's been a massive process and we're just getting this volume to the printers and then hopefully we've got the process down pat that it will all come out. But it's a complex, uh, it's, a, it's a complex publication. There's a lot of work going into it. It's going to look nice and it will be seven volumes if you want the notes. The, one of the reasons, sorry, I didn't mean to drop your question no, no. before. One of the reasons why, and this has all got to do with libraries and talks and I'm going to wind up on this point because we need to be responsible just as we need to be responsible to the physical environment, we need to be responsible to the Jewish textual environment. So, it may well be that not everything I write in my notes will be 150% kosher to everybody. Not in, a, not in a radical way, but in a way where I talk about things in a... In, in, in a way that might be a little bit um, confronting for some people to, uh, to acknowledge about what we know about Jewish texts and so on. I'm, 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 I'm downplaying it, but there is a whole aspect to where I didn't want any interpretation of mine. And I went, I mean, I drew on a lot of commentaries and I my own insights. I didn't want any of that to overwhelm the beauty of the text itself and take away from the fundamental point the fundamental point of Jewish textual engagement, which is there is no Jewish education without a text in front of you. Well, there's no Jewish textual education without a text in front of you. Yeah? If you're learning Chumash, have a Chumash open. 
If you're learning Mishnah, have a Mishnah open. If you're learning Zohar, have the Zohar open. And it is about the physical existence of text, uh, about its engagement, and about going back to the sources. So, for those reasons and more, I kept my notes separate, uh, and I've just thought at the end of the day it was the decision to make. Uh, it means also, because my translation, and I'm saying this amongst the cognoscenti, so I will, my translation is, um, uh, it's glut. Somebody know what I mean by that? It's super kosher. It's super kosher. It's super kosher. Meaning that except for volume seven, yeah, or actually might once or twice you know, mention the word Aristotle, except for volume seven, you could put the first six volumes on the shelf of any shul or yeshiva in the world. It's I've purely given over using the insight of the great luminaries of our generation and previous generations on what the words mean, on what the text means and so on. So I believe that we've done that. We've done our work there, but I wanted to keep it known separate. So it was a huge thing. It was also amazingly decisions that you don't realise you have to make until you publish in the Jewish world. What's going where? Is the Hebrew on the right with the English on the left or the other way around? And we spent like two months just thinking about that. Thank you for listening, guys. And I hope that has been of some educational uh, value. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon. Thank you.